In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Enifis Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo. This is Adam. Just a quick heads up on the interview today with Jerry Yudelson. It was a great interview, but unfortunately the Skype connection wasn't as strong as it could be. And there are a few places where Jerry fades in and out and there is a little bit of dog barking somewhere along the line. However, it's minimal. Please don't be put off by this. I apologize for it, but it's well worth listening to Jerry. He drops a lot of knowledge bombs. So enjoy. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator. Here with my colleague and official agitator, friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, everybody. Yes, I am the agitator against the status quo, the angry old man, or ex-angry young man, now angry old man. (laughs) (laughs) For today's episode, we're going to be challenging the world of building certification programs with our special guest, Jerry Udelson. Jerry is a professional engineer, lead fellow, author extraordinaire, now with 14 books on green and sustainability. Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to see you guys. Jerry, you know, I did a uh, Google search before uh, calling you up using the word green buildings, 23,500,000 results. world wants to know how you became one of the top internationally recognized voices amongst all that green stuff out there. I paid people. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Great on bribery. There's no question. Now I remember some. I when I did a bit of research on you, the name Godfather of Green came up. How did that happen? You know, it's funny. I gave an interview to Wired magazine about five years ago, and they came up with that title and a very nice caricature of myself. And I've adopted that as a moniker ever since. I figured if Wired said it, it must be true. I couldn't agree more with that. I could not agree more. <laughs> so. Jerry, one of the reasons I was really interested in talking to you, I've, I've read your book, Reinventing Green Buildings. There's a couple of ways to look at that book, right? Someone who's not thinking too deeply, I think, would look at that book and think you're anti-green building, and you're absolutely not. But you are critical of the current certification system. So do you want to take us through your thought process on that? Yeah, so I had spent a lot of years, I trained 4,000 people in the LEED system. I was one of the first LEED faculty members in the U.S., one of the first 10 and uh, eventually became a lead fellow in 2011 and started to get concerned with the lack of openness in talking about the deficiencies of the system, in particular about the lack of any real data on the actual performance of green buildings. As you know, we make a lot of assertions that green buildings are a third more efficient, they use 20% less water, et cetera, et cetera, but there's no data. And it's really shocking to me now that the last serious study that was done of the energy performance of LEED certified buildings was in 2008. So we now have a database of 30,000 buildings, 35,000 buildings, and no information. So it's, it's disturbing if you're an advocate for better buildings and more efficient buildings not to have real data from buildings that are supposedly top of the class. So fast forwarding. I took a position at the beginning of 2014 as the head of the Green Building Initiative, a rival to the LEED system. And so I began to look at things from the outside looking in, and it became clear to me over a period of time that not only was there a problem with openness and transparency in the actual performance of these buildings, but there was also an issue with growth. They simply weren't growing in any part of the market except commercial real estate and corporate real estate which is less than 10% of all the buildings in the U.S. So I began to look at sort of a little bit deeper about issues of cost, openness, availability, et cetera. And and it became clear, and certainly over the last two years, fairly clear that people are saying, well, we like the green idea, 
we like the certain measures, whether it's green roofs or high efficiency or zero energy buildings, but we don't see any need to certify. We don't see any need to have anybody third party tell us that we did a good job. And most architects, if you ask them, gee, I'm doing a $50 million building, I'm getting $4 million in fees, and you're telling me I can't certify what I did to your system, that I have to have spend a couple hundred thousand dollars and have all these outside consultants certify what I'm telling you I already did. So there's a lot of resistance legitimately. And one of the things I likened it to as I began to think about it was the U.S. income tax system processes roughly almost 150 million individual returns a year and 250 million total returns with a 1% audit rate and a fairly good compliance rate. So in my view of the world, why can't we have a green building certification approach that does something like that, which would cut costs 90 to 99%. And once certification became in essence free to people that had actually done the work, it would take off again. So the whole notion is, gee, the original vision of USGBC was everyone will be in a green building within a generation. And this generation is getting pretty long in the tooth. And we're at only 4 or 5% penetration after almost 20 years of the lead system. So in most normal businesses, you would say, well, people aren't using our product. There must be something wrong with the product, not the reverse, yes. that there must be something wrong with the people. That they're, they're just obstinate. Well, you know, Americans and Canadians are pretty obstinate, independent. <laughs> anyway. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey. Um, <laughs> that's, fighting, uh, that's fighting talk in Canada. <laughs> reinvent the product. So right now we have almost 11,000 interpretations of the lead credits that are on record. Wow. 11, and 400 addenda. And you begin to say, well, if it takes 10 or 11,000 interpretations to do something pretty straightforward like green building, maybe we're on the wrong path. And so what, but what happened, of course, is there's such a vested interest in the system and lots of people like it. In, if you're doing a commercial office building in a downtown area of a big city in North America, it's going to be a lead building because you need that for competitive reasons. Yep. If you're a Fortune 500 corporation and you want you want to keep your green cred with investors and employees, you do a lead building for your headquarters and so forth. And if you're certain outfits like a Starbucks, for example, you try to do a lot of lead certified stores. Those are tiny. If you look at it in the aggregate, we have certified less than 5% of the area of commercial buildings in North America and less than 1% of the total buildings. So there's no way, in my view, to maintain that we're going to get anywhere near our goals in any period of time, you know, foreseeable period of time. So the whole point of the book, Reinventing Green Building, was to ask, is there a better way? And then to show what I think would be a better way. And in essence, it's about simplification. It's about saying, look, 80% of what of the carbon impact of a building can be done in four or five simple credits, energy use, water use, materials purchasing, waste generation, all of which can effectively be automated, put on a big data cloud platform and give you a score, not just a one-time snapshot, but a continuous score of how you're doing versus a set of criteria. And so what I really advocated for is, let's not treat this like a Jackson Pollock painting where we just keep dripping <laughs> more paint onto the canvas and call it fine art. Let's treat this like a sculpture, Michelangelo's David, where we take this block of granite called green and we chip away at everything that's not essential until we get a recognizable piece of art out of it. Yeah. So it's, just, it's an analogy, but it's kind of instead of piling on, let's 
take away. That simplification, if people knew, gee, if I could just do five things that are relatively important and I can certify it myself with subject to random audits and I can get it done in a week instead of my last project in 2012 took a year and a half to certify <laughs> after, after all the data were submitted. Yeah. We eventually got a, a corporate headquarters to be lead gold in Arizona, but it just taught me that by the time you get the plaque, nobody's interested. Oh, yeah, just put it there in the lobby somewhere. Or, you know, we'll buy the decal to put on the glass. It has no, has no PR value. It has no marketing value. It has no value to anybody because the building's already built, occupied, and operating. And now you're going to tell me that it's good. Okay. It's like your parents waiting till you finish school to tell you why they really thought you were a good kid after all. You know, what, what's the point there? So you, the point is the marketplace works in the way the marketplace wants to work, not in the way a nonprofit organization likes to work. Yep. And that's the real issue here. Can we do like Energy Star, where you simply put down your score, you have an engineer sign it, it gets submitted to the U.S. Department of Energy, and if you're in the top 25%, you get the Attaboy Energy Star Award for that year. And it's a simple, straightforward process. In fact, Energy Star scores are now on every building operating platform, software, big data analytic platform. So Energy Star score is just an output of all the things you've been doing to cut energy use. And so that way, I can respond to my CEO and my boss who says, how are we doing versus our goal of being 10% more sustainable year over year? And that I think, you know, we've sort of lost that idea of sustainability. And we now just have all the hoo-ha around plaques and, and awards. And People are saying, well, you know, I did the right thing. I got this award. We don't even know. It used to be USDBC. Well, you've got to give us operating data at least after three years. You've got to come back and you've got to recertify the bill. And that was the idea. Yeah. That every three years, you've got to recertify or some thugs will come in the middle of night and rip the plaque <laughs> off of your wallet. <laughs> you know, if only it was large, like that. <laughs> two very large hunchbacks. But they gave that up because no one would do it. Yes. So we don't, we had buildings certified in 2005, 10, 15. We don't know how they're operating because no one collects the data. No one has to collect the data. And so it's a bit of a um, shell game. Find the P under the shell because there's no data. We don't know anything about these buildings. So that's why I think that U.S. Green Building Council has been derelict in their duty as a nonprofit to work in the public interest to go out and find the information. In fact, there's about three times as many PR people in that organization as there are technical people now. So if you kind of look at the staff thing and they've outsourced a hundred or more jobs to India, you know, because that's, that's where the current CEO comes from, I suppose, and it's cheaper, but it's no longer an organization that has any real interest or relevance to the building industry is just selling a plaque. I got a great bit of insight into the power to PR of the US Green Building Council recently. So I do a lot of work in the Middle East on university campuses, and a lot of these buildings are built based on a donation from an alumni. So there was one project I was working on, there was something like a $30 million donation. I was speaking to the president of the university. And I said to him, how does this work? He said, Adam, there's only two things they ever ask for when they give money. One, put their name on the building, two, it must be a green building. That's it. So, you know, there's power with that brand or perceived great association. Standing next to a green building makes you look good is what I took away from that, right? Well, that's true. And and it does show that th there is a power in branding and eco labels. But there's six, uh, roughly by the last count, 600 building certifications around the world. 600? Wow. There's now a certification in just about every country of any size that's run by that country. In fact, Leeds' biggest competitor now, besides the UK system, which it's based on, the BREAM, is the new system called EDGE from the uh, International Finance Corporation, which is part of the World Bank. And one of the senior project managers at EDGE 
observed what I'd been saying, that nobody was really using green buildings outside of the super modern sector in most developing countries, you know, the sector that caters to international tenants will always do a lead building in Mumbai or Delhi or, or what have you, because those tenants have in their criteria, it has to be lead, right? Or bream. But edge is like, can we do this 90% cheaper and still keep some reasonable degree of validity and ability? And the answer is yes. So the edge certification is now popping up everywhere around the developing world as the alternative to lead. And and we'll, we'll stay that way because it has the backing of a major organization, IFC, part of World Bank. Yeah. And it has a very smart and articulate champion based in Washington, D.C., but who I ran into in Africa a few months ago selling it. So, you, you know, nothing exists that, that isn't sold, so to speak, <laughs> you know. Maybe salvation in a religious sense, but basically anything that you pay for has got to be sold. And the problem with alternatives to lead has always been who's going to put the money in to sell it. Yes. And in the U.S. and in Canada, that hasn't happened, with the exception in Canada of BOMA Best, which has certified somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000 Canadian commercial buildings to a reasonably good set of criteria over the last 10 years. And I think in the existing building sector where LEED is abysmally weak, that shows you that a good brand sold by a respected organization can in fact work. But it, you know, if we're gonna solve this carbon problem, in the US there's five and a half million commercial buildings. In Canada there's about half a million non-residential buildings, most of them small. And yeah. They're simply not going to pay for an expensive certification. And so at, at this point, you say in LEED, last year we did under 700 buildings of that five and a half million, which if you want to run the numbers is 0.01%, wow. roughly one, one in 10,000 existing buildings. And if you look at it by market sector, higher education, K-12, healthcare, you find nothing but declines in lead certification in the last three years. So you're basically saying this isn't working. It's not getting uptake. Other certifications like the Living Building Challenge have done almost nothing. They've done certified less than 50 buildings in 10 years, which simply says you put in a set of almost impossible to achieve criteria. You get a lot of feel good and press for the ones that meet those criteria, but it doesn't affect ongoing building operations at all. And my whole point is we have got to get serious about this challenge and stop pretending that we've solved it because we did one thing right 15 years ago. Jerry, I just want to bring up a couple of points here that you've, that, uh, you've triggered some thoughts. And one of them is, you know, differentiating between energy and indoor environmental quality associated with the term green the second thing is, and you just mentioned it here, but I was told that over 80% of all buildings in North America are less than 20,000 square feet. A lot of people think that these, you know, the buildings that get all the, the buzz, you know, these are huge, huge structures. But the reality is most architecture in North America is, are small buildings, not big right. buildings. Right. And the third thing I'd like to maybe get, get you to think about, again, it kind of supports what you've been saying. That is there was a recent paper, that, in fact, June 17th, it was published talked about BREEAM research projects on, on indoor environmental quality. I'm going to quote the statement here. So the results from a cross-sectional questionnaire showed that BREEAM certification per se did not seem to substantially influence building and workspace satisfaction. And that has been supported by two other papers on lead buildings. In other words, they have these IEQ requirements, but they don't seem to be changing actually what the satisfaction rate that the occupants have in the building. So, if you could comment on this energy versus indoor environmental quality, comment on why these buildings aren't producing environments that people want, and and then also maybe point out again that size of that building, 20,000 square foot or less, these, these buildings aren't even looking at Bream or LEED or EDGE or any of the other ones. They're just being built as per the status quo. Well, I think for a small building – you know, if you look at it, let's say $150 a square foot U.S., 
a 20,000 square foot building is, you know, $3 million, right? How much extra cost can you bear in a project like that? Could you even bear 0.1%, which would be 3,000 in your budget to do just a certification? And the answer is no, I think $500 for a building that size would probably be more reasonable. And that's with consultant time and everything else. So the real challenge is obviously going to be getting the data onto a platform that it can be evaluated on directly from the documents, the construction documents of the building. That's a new building. For an existing building, the effort has to lead to improvements and upgrades of the building. And let's just say that, and that's not a daunting issue because I actually gave a talk in Vancouver in January, I believe it was, to a building conference. And I said, you know, if you actually break down the fact that roughly 75% of all energy efficiency benefits come from about 25% of buildings, you can actually look at, and people have done these studies. And so you said, well, if I took 25% of Canadian commercial buildings and decided half a million, so that's 125,000, and decided over 10 years I was going to upgrade those. So that's now 12,000 buildings a year. That's 1,000 a month over the entire breadth of Canada. Is that a doable project? And the answer is yes. It is, yes, absolutely. Oh, for sure it is. So we don't have to like get overwhelmed by this problem. We have to start saying, well, where's the low-hanging fruit? And let's just go pluck it. And then we'll do more on the rest. Meanwhile, this smart building revolution is taking place where buildings are being more and more managed remotely by essentially bots, by algorithms, by people sitting at computers looking for anomalies in their operation. And so the whole idea is to make building operations work a little bit more like the human body where we have thousands of sensors and one CPU. Right there, there you yeah. go. Absolutely. So the idea is decentralized sensing and centralized intelligence in buildings, and this can be done now because sensors are cheap, internet is cheap, data storage is cheap, data analysis is cheap. We have all the tools to do this right. So that's kind of one set of issues. It is a, a doable problem over ten years, easy, and we could just get started on it if we didn't tie ourselves in knots about certifications. Now, with respect to indoor environments, do you know anybody that wants to work in an office building that <laughs> gets out of school and says, oh, the best thing I can possibly think of is to sit in an office for eight to 10 hours a day, you yeah. know? So trying to find satisfaction relatively in the office environment is always going to be difficult. But the big discussion has always been about health and you know, we know that in the 80s, we cut back on ventilation rates to meet our energy requirements, energy efficiency requirements. And in fact, I looked at the ASHRAE standards between early 70s and early 80s. The recommended ventilation rate was reduced by 75%. Wow. You look at those two. And it was engineers designing to what they thought were best practices, cut ventilation by 75%. It's no wonder people got sick because yeah. we, we had poor moisture management. We had poor cladding in a lot of buildings, so the moisture gets in. We had off-gassing of toxic materials. We had all of the ingredients for sick building syndrome, which plagued us for a decade until they revised the ventilation standards. So we have already been through one episode like that. Now we have better materials. We don't have the off-gassing. We have more attention to moisture management in buildings. We still have some issues in older buildings, no doubt. But I think the discussion about health in buildings has been misplaced. We now have the well standard, you know, which is now yeah. run by the former USGBC CEO. It's interesting. Lead version four commercial buildings has 11 prerequisites, things you got to do or you can't certify. Well has 37 preconditions. Do you really think that it's going to get much of an uptake? And the answer is no. Yeah. It's going to be a showpiece kind of thing. You know, only 20 horses or less run in the Kentucky Derby every year uh, among the thousands of thoroughbreds. So there's always going to be a few. But the real issue is 
if you walk to work or bicycle, you're going to be healthier relatively than somebody who doesn't. Yeah, which is outside the building envelope. <laughs> well, but we know that. Yeah. We know that if you don't have mold or mildew or off-gassing of toxic materials in a building, it's going to be healthier. We know that if people have access to daylight, they're going to be healthier and happier, you know, because we're human beings. We want to see outdoors. Beyond that, we don't know a lot about health in buildings. And so there's all of this hoo-ha about wanting to know every single element and every building material. The fact of the matter is the stuff you buy for buildings today, whether it's carpets, furniture, paints, sealants, adhesives, all meets really good standards. And there shouldn't be any issues. There's always going to be a sensitive part of the population, no doubt. But for my wife, for example, if someone wears perfume, which you cannot control, except by peer pressure in an in office building, she gets sick. There's, she's one of the five, six, seven percent of people that have severe chemical allergies. And so we can be in the most healthy environment and somebody will walk up next to her who is perfume happy and she'll get physical reaction. So you can't control stuff like that. So I do think that satisfaction in buildings is largely a result of good lighting, views of the outdoors, and nothing bad happening. Now, interestingly enough, there's now software, which I saw last week at this conference in San Diego, a software company called Comfy that allows you to dial in your own desired temperature and is now uh, designing a, um, a way to track you around the building, which is hard if you think of all the floors in the yeah. building. So that when you go into a new space, it automatically knows what your comfort is. And assuming it's about the same as everybody around you by zone, will make it hotter, cooler. So we're getting back to personal environments, which interestingly enough is a product that Johnson Controls had on the market about 20 years ago, which had a white noise generator, your own fan, and I forget a few other doodads. And if you actually thought about it, it was $1,500 then per workspace, the productivity gain would have dwarfed that $1,500 investment in almost yeah. no time. Yeah, absolutely. But nobody thinks about productivity issues, which dwarf energy issues in buildings by 100 to 1. Yes, yes. Okay. So, so the cost of people is 100 times the cost of energy, more or less on a square, per square foot basis in North America. We don't think that way. We think an efficient building is one that has the greatest ratio of leasable space to gross space. That's what real estate people call it. <laughs> building. But if you think about it, that's a building that everyone is 500 meters from a window, right? No, that's 99% efficient. In Germany, by contrast, culturally, they don't buy that. You can't be more than seven meters from a window anywhere in Germany. It's against the law. They think it's inhuman. So no building can be more than 44 feet wide without a central atrium or whatever, 14 meters. That's a cultural issue. I was in Norway oh, 15 years ago now at the opening of a green building for their state telephone company. And everybody worked in a cell of 30 people and had operable windows. I asked the question, who decides to open the windows? Well, the manager, of course, of that group of 30 and I'm thinking to myself, even then, no manager in North America would ever take a decision on behalf of 30 people without extensive consultations and no. et cetera, right? <laughs> but it, sure. But sure. so a, lo a lot of what we talk about in, in buildings and satisfaction is cultural. It's not structural. It's not systems. It's what are our expectations. Yeah. So, Jerry, I couldn't agree more with you. I'm on my way down to Long Beach to uh, the ASHRAE conference is coming up. We have a seminar on energy versus indoor environmental quality. And our argument is, is that so much emphasis has been placed on energy as opposed to the occupant that we've missed the complete reasoning why we build buildings. You know, we don't build buildings to employ energy engineers. We we employ buildings to our, our, our uh, engineers to uh, build buildings that people can occupy it. So, you know, we've started a, a movement about design for people, good buildings will follow. That includes energy. 
but it's based on the premise that it's the like you said you have thousands of sensors one cpu unit we need to pay homage to it ultimately it becomes the judge of how well we've done our job well if you if you think about ashray so mechanical engineers they like to measure things and things that are you know where people don't muck up the uh, equations so to speak <laughs> I, I i know in ashray you have a unit called the clo is that right yep. clo value yeah uh, the, the clothing people wear is hard to determine comfort. It's interesting. In, in Japan, last summer, I think it was, or summer before, they've had a real shortage of electric power because of the Fukushima yes. disaster controls on nuclear generation. And they actually allowed people in offices to take off their suit jackets. <gasps> and this was like Ooh. a big cultural revolution for the Japanese to actually just work in a shirt and tie, which in an American office, it's like you come in and even if you're in a shirt and tie, hardly anyone is anymore. But if you are, only the engineers are still wearing ties, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Always late to change, right? <laughs> Architects don't. But anyway, you take off your jacket right away and you don't put it on till you go outdoors or, or it's the end of the day. So again, I want to come back to this issue of culture. I know Ashray is officially a North American society, but it's global in its impact. Absolutely. And, and I do think the issue of culture, I mean, I was in Nairobi a couple months ago in Kenya, and it's right on the equator. It's, I don't know, one or two degrees. It's always 85 every day, high temperature. And so you look and say, why do I need to AC most buildings? Why do I need to air condition the buildings at all? Why not use natural ventilation? Well, in Hawaii, it's interesting, most residences are now being built with sealed buildings, high-rise condos with sealed buildings. They have to use AC, but they have the trade winds. Reliably, I know. just about every afternoon, the, just about when the building's getting really warm, the trade winds come up and cool it off. It's um, a delightful place to live. So we've done a lot of things that need to be rethought. And I think the biggest thing that's happening now and something ASHRAE should really be concerned about is the movement of people away from being in buildings at all. I know the GSA now has reduced their square footage allotment per person by 50%. In other words, they understand that for the most part, people are out in the field in an awful lot of their offices, whether they're the Bureau of Land Management or all kinds of things. And they only need, they can just do hoteling for space and that's good enough. I was at a, a big bank, the largest in Australia, Macquarie Bank in Sydney a few years ago, and their new headquarters building has no private offices. It's just small conference groups, big groups, all hands meeting, and lots of couches for people to work on their laptops. The idea and the square foot per person went down by a third, or square meters per person went from 13 to nine in their design standards. And the bank's idea was real simple. If you're not out meeting customers, you're not making money for the bank. Oh, imagine that. What a radical thought. Right. So <laughs> I do think that building designers, architects get this, interior designers get this, but there's a disconnect with the engineering side. Absolutely. Because, you know, I was doing a building for a university in Utah, doing the lead part of it. And I said, the electrical engineer, while we're having the first project meeting, you need to come. He says, when are they going to get to the electrical stuff? That's, that's when I'll come. And I'm thinking, well, <laughs> you're involved with lighting, et cetera. He did not want the responsibility of being part of the design to have to think about something beyond his very narrow set of criteria. And so that's equally on the engineers to get savvy enough about how buildings are designed, what yeah, people want, et cetera, to feel comfortable interacting with architects at the earliest design stages, because that's when all the decisions are made that ultimately affect indoor air quality, that affect energy use. That's when the decisions most, as you know, you've probably seen the McLeamy curve, 80% of costs are locked in almost before schematic design starts. And then your chance to influence it goes down dramatically. So that is something that is more cultural among engineers, particularly consulting engineers, 
to get comfortable and ask for the fees that are required to spend that extra time. Because at this point, the engineers are always like, don't beat me up too bad. I'll just do as little as I can because <laughs> you know, you're not giving me any money. So I think it's the same with architects. You haven't doc demonstrated value. Architects are always complaining about how they're the worst paid profession, certainly in North America. <laughs> you abdicated responsibility for results. And so I think in both the engineering and architecture contracts with building owners, there ought to be a clause that requires the owners to give them performance data for at least three years afterwards. And there ought to be enough fee so they can stay with the building the first three years to help fine tune it. And a fellow in the UK, Adrian Lehman, who's evaluated probably a thousand buildings, seriously evaluated, calls it soft landings for buildings. A hard landing is you reach the end of the 12 month warranty period and it's like, good luck, God bless you. I hope it works. Um, I'm out of here. No fee, no work. It's kind of like going to the laundry and trying to get your clothes without having a ticket. Yeah, it's like wishing a parachute is good luck as he goes out the plane, right? <laughs> well, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I do think that everyone has a part in the problem and everyone has a part in the solution. And yet, when you really look at how do you achieve high-performance results on conventional budgets, which is the name of the game, it's as much about process management as it is about technical expertise. And one of the great examples of this is a building of the National Renewable Energy Lab in Golden, Colorado, which is well-documented on the web. And the whole idea was there, how green a building can you build for the budget I have and yes. the program I have? And so instead of saying, well, I want this much green and what's it going to cost me? They say, I only have this much money because the Congress has allocated this much money. I got 900 people I got to accommodate or 800, whatever the number was. I want it to be as green as possible. Here's my must-haves. Here's my like-to-have. And here's, it would be nice if you could do it. And that was a list of 26 measurable criteria and a design-build project. And they met all 26 criteria through process management, hired process consultant, et cetera. So a lot of what we talk about is not technical stuff. Technically, any good engineer can design a building today that does 30,000 BTUs per square foot per year energy use. Technically, any engineer can do that. But it's can you do 20 is now a question about process. Yeah. And so to me, that's where that's the sort of secret sauce. And most of us in the design professions are not that good at it. Well, it goes back to your comment about making having the engineers at the design stage and the, on a collaborative team, integrated design as opposed to segregated design. They need to be right. there at the table. There's no question, but they also need to have the skills of knowing how to interact at that level. Right. Because as you well know, most engineers are introverts, meaning they look at their shoes while they talk to you, right? Yeah. Instead of your shoes, <laughs> like an extrovert. Most engineers are more comfortable waiting to be handed the building fully designed. Now they just got to make it work. Yeah. And it's that thing about getting out of your comfort zone, certainly for engineers, building engineers, services engineers, that's so critical. And it's, 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 if you're going to be a light, a d electrical engineer, you got to know about lighting and to know about lighting means you need to know something about human psychology, <laughs> yep. you know, and that's not a course you ever took, but you're a human being. And so you can kind of figure it out. We've been studying lighting and productivity since the 1930s. This is not new stuff, yeah. but unless you go to architectural engineering program, you never get it. If you go to conventional engineering, in most schools in the U.S., I know, you never get this kind of instruction. So, again, the better engineers figure this out. They understand how to engage. They demand to be engaged. Yeah. They don't take jobs where they can't be engaged. A friend of mine, Bill Reed, is a 
pro strong proponent of integrated design and architect. And that's all he does. He consults on integrated design. He told me once that he had turned down a, a job with a very prominent architect because he asked if that architect would be present at all the design meetings. And he was told, no, no, he's much too busy. You know, he's very famous. And he said, I'm not taking the job. If the guy, if that guy can come back and make changes at any time yeah. to what the, has worked out, it's not going to be integrated design. It's, right. it's, it's going to be a pretty looking, poorly performing box. And that, that was his, his notion. So again, process management, having very clear goals, begin with the end in mind. All of those things are more important than technical expertise because right now energy models basically work. You know, I have a friend who runs the energy practice of a pretty good sized consulting firm and he can get within 5% on just about every project and sometimes even better on actual performance versus design estimates at the end of design. So it's no longer a modeling exercise we have to worry about. It's the assumptions that went into the model. You know, we, we still put electric outlets in buildings when you can do power over Ethernet at 60 watts and charge any mobile device directly from the, you know, the, the Ethernet cable. So why are we still putting plugs in that no one's going to use, right? It's, it's like this is a lot of catching up to do. And we still denigrate the so-called low-voltage side of building design. They're like the afterthought. They should be the central pillar because building is nothing but an information device. And, and it should be the central pillar of the smart building backbone should be the first thought. Well, how are we going to manage this whole enterprise for worker satisfaction? Right. Yeah. Why isn't every building built with a query system that on a random basis, are you comfortable right now? Yeah. And then yeah, it comes it comes right on your laptop. Whenever you log into the building wireless, why aren't you getting right now, two o'clock in the afternoon, ten in the morning, whatever? Are you comfortable right now? Yes or no? Simple question. Click it here, go on to your work. Accumulate the data, you'll know. ASHRAE standard is twenty percent of people are uncomfortable at any given time, right? The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And... Subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. I just want to get your view on the Green Building Council in Canada have just issued a net zero building standard. Have you any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, come on. It is either zero or it isn't. Thank you. And it's binary, right? It is or it isn't, right? It's outcome-based. You know, again, people are free to set standards and sell labels and so forth. Yeah. But building performance, you know, I was at probably the, the best-run government group in the world is the Building Construction Authority in Singapore. And they re re uh, renovated a three-story conventional office building in 2009, roughly, that was aiming at zero net energy. This is at two degrees north latitude. It's on the equator. It's 90 degrees Fahrenheit and 90% humidity just about every day. Yeah. Tough environment to design in. And their idea is, can we make this net zero? They put running meters in the lobby it used to be like mcdonald's and hamburgers you know six yeah. billion sold seven billion sold and you have how much energy do we consume how much do we produce from the rooftop solar no renewable energy certificates nothing just rooftop solar and they've been running that for seven years it's it's always positive 
So there's a net positive retrofit in the tropics. But you just got to put meters in the lobby. How much did I buy? How much did I produce? And at the end of a year, it's either zero or it isn't. You know, in fact, you can even have the net meter in case people are challenged at arithmetic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> on the but, but this is not, the point here is net zero, why should it be even at the building level? Why shouldn't that building have 100% renewable power and we won't worry about net zero? Yes. I, I think the focus on building by building will never reach our goals building by building. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it because there are a lot of other good reasons to do it. But we've got to focus on the how we make electricity, which I think is changing much faster than buildings are going to change. I mean, look at the building industry versus, let's say, an iPhone. I get updates on the iPhone three or four times a year. How often is a building systems updated? <laughs> basically, basically, when they stop working. Yeah, 15, you know. 20 years, pretty much. Or you do an innovation. So an intervention innovation like PACE financing, which is a property assessed clean energy, which is an innovation where the property and not the owner bears the cost of the retrofit. It's in Canada, it's in the U.S., it's finally starting to take off. And the whole idea is very simple. We just, if you have a property tax, you put the cost of the building upgrades on the property tax, not the owner. And over time, the building pays off the loan year by year, essentially with the savings. Yes. And keeps the difference. That is an innovation that in financing retrofits, because we already know how to do them. We've got software bots that can tell you how to retrofit a building with pretty good accuracy. We don't need engineers to do audits and then go back to their office and write expensive reports over the next three months. You've got best practices are well known. What you should do first, second, and third is well known. And there are companies that sell software, which now the U.S. federal government is using, to design retrofits. Because if I know the use of the building, the climate zone, and the current energy use, I pretty well know what to do next. So one of my insights with what's going on at the moment, particularly with the Internet of Things and the measurability of buildings, and I like your thing, the building is an information device. When you have that level of information being fed back, the pressure then starts falling to the FM team, right, to maintain and run that building properly because that's one of the big weak leaks in buildings, I think. What do you think about that? Well, as I said earlier, I think the whole idea is not to give them so much to do, right. but to have that information go to a group, a small group. So there's a group in Seattle of 30 people, a very large mechanical service contractor. They manage 10,000 buildings in North America and in cities where they have technicians. So when a technician is dispatched to a building, they know what the problem is because they have fault detection and diagnostic software. They know what skill sets to send to fix it, what tools to take, because most of the time a guy goes out with a clipboard and starts nosing around, right? <laughs> and, you know, there's always going to be difficult situations for which good engineers are needed to figure out what's going wrong. No question. I can read those in HPAC engineering you know, case studies, and it's like, yeah, nothing is obvious in these case studies, but for the most part, it's like your dampers don't open and close, your chiller efficiency is off. I've seen situations where electricians wire things the wrong way, so things close when they should open, open when they should close. Those kind of things, fairly easy to figure out once you get in and take a look. Nonetheless, the whole idea is manage buildings remotely so that the technician gets a clear under, understanding of what, what the issue is, where they need to go, how urgent it is, etc. This is being done, by the way, at Microsoft headquarters, where they have 115 buildings, 40,000 people in the Seattle area. They're managing that with a war room of 10 people and sensors everywhere. And the whole idea is fix a problem before it's reported. If a software engineer has to get up from her desk and it's too hot, too cold, not enough air, too much air, and report that, 
it's 20 minutes to get back on task. And it would take them five years to survey the campus and basically, you know, individually fix what they found in all the buildings. And by the end of five years, they got to start over. It's like the spinning plates in the old vaudeville acts where you spin the first one. And by the time you get the end of the line, the first one's wobbling. So you run back and spin it again. The whole idea here is let's be proactive. Let's have the right kind of software, the right kind of sensors, the right kind of platforms. And then all I'm watching for is anomalies. And human eye is very good at spotting anomalies in graphical data, or you can even have alarms. If I all of a sudden see 10x a normal water use in a building, I don't send somebody over to examine. I call a plumber. Because there's a leak. There's a leak. <laughs> right? Right away. And I have a plumber right. under contract, and he or she gets an urgent message, and they're over there. If I see something that's 5% off, I put it on my list to go out and check on a normal basis, right? So that's the whole idea of spotting anomalies, which you can do easily with graphical visual displays. You know, when I was a young engineer, it was the most fun in the world when I was in college at a summer job to make graphs and charts of utility bills, right? And interviews. By the time you finish your assignment, the summer was over and you felt good and they threw everything that you had done, probably. We don't need that anymore. We have all this stuff available. We're awash in data. We're awash in ways to visualize it, operationalize it, message about it. We know how we got all this stuff. Why are we goofing around with things like net zero certifications when we really should be focused on what they call in Europe now deep retrofits. We should be focused on the massive buildings and not a few star performers, I think. Jerry, I I have one uh, last question for you, and that has to do with the tension that's created between standardization and customization. So you've talked a lot about programs and systems and that type of stuff. I mean, if you look back at all of the mechanical rooms and buildings across the world, you'll never find one or two that are the same. They're always different. And there's a danger in that. And particularly when we start talking about going forward and looking at software packages and sensor systems and the Internet of Things, we're running the same risk of having all of this customized stuff out there at the risk of creating more complexity. So can you comment on that standard versus customization Well, every company likes to sell a custom solution, right? Because it it locks in the customer. But what I do think you'll find with the platforms and their so-called APIs, application programming interface, I think, is that so? one of the systems I have some familiarity with, they can read 150 different types of devices. You know, in other words, if you write a a language for your... um, building management system, they can read that language. As long as you have an internet IP address and a publicly published protocol or dictionary, if you will, they can read it. You can just, that's easy. So I'm I'm not so much against customization as against making things so proprietary, nobody can access them. The other good thing I love about the platforms is the building owner keeps ownership of the data. In other words, it never goes to the third party. Ownership does not go to the third party, just the data needed. So because they're all subscription software as a service, you want to be able to change vendors if somebody else comes along with something a lot better, you can do that. So that, you know, the big issue now is cybersecurity of all this data. You can imagine how many sensitive installations the U.S. government has, Canadian government has, you know, the, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers manages 37,000 buildings all by themselves, independent of general services, which I think manages half a million buildings in the U.S., something like 10 percent of the whole real estate is government, federal government. So it's not so much customization or standardization versus customization. I, I agree with you about mechanical rooms. And as you probably well know, mechanical rooms, electrical rooms are always afterthoughts and are always squeezed in. Right, right. And there's nothing that engineers can really do about that because architects consider them, as do most owners, to be wasted space. So 
I think the engineers need to be clever. I just saw a building, a very tall building design in which all the mechanical equipment is on the outside of the building all the way up. A German friend of mine, years, 20 years ago, designed the first green building in Europe, high rise, and the mechanical, mechanical equipment is on the 19th floor because they didn't want people to have to be on a, a 35-story building roof trying to make things work. So there, there's arguments for both approaches. But again, what we're going to see, I'm sure, because the big issue in construction now, commercial construction, is lack of skilled labor. Huge issue. Lack of labor, period. So we're going to see a lot more off-site construction, a lot more modular factory-built items, yeah, that's, which, that's which the solution right there. ought to include mechanical rooms, electrical rooms. So it's just a module. It has this and this footprint. Don't worry about it. It just gets built at this point during the rough-in stage. We, we put it in and so forth. That, I think, is going to come anyway, and smart vendors are going to figure out how to create those packages. If you look at your smartphone and you look at how much is packaged inside of this tiny little box, you realize that we really have had just begun to understand how, how to make this stuff better. Should we have fan walls instead of big fans? You could go on and on about all the intricacies. And probably the biggest thing to hit, you know, building engineering in the last 20 years is just variable refrigerant flows. If you think about that, it's a, it's a nice innovation, you know, the idea of moving the refrigerant rather than the air, moving the cold refrigerant rather than cold air, and then uh, chilled ceilings, radiant ceilings, radiant floors. That goes back to the 60s, 1960s. I've had old engineers tell me, oh, we, we used to call those induction systems, and we... We designed this in the 1960s and 70s. You know, it's like everything old is new again. But right, yeah. what is new is the software. What is new is the cheap sensors, cheap, accurate sensors. What is new is the analytics and the algorithms. And I think we need to figure out how to take maximum advantage of those so that we can accomplish what the purpose of a building is, as you said much earlier, which is to help people work or to play, or to recreate, or to study, or whatever. It's not to consume energy, etc. Okay, we're, com we're coming up on the hour now. I've got two final questions for you. One small, one that's easy to answer. One, I want to get your opinion on the future, which is always hard. So the company you're referring to in Seattle, was that McKinstry? Yes. So props to McKinstry. I'm aware of them. They do great work. So I just wanted to give them a shout out. So final question then is just to wrap up. What do you see happening in the next five or 10 years? What do you think the big trend is for green building? Well, certainly there's going to be a tremendous amount of activity around the overall quality of building materials. There's going to be tremendous activity around health of people in buildings, and not just health, but productivity. So all the studies you've seen coming out now about you know cognitive processes with respect to indoor air quality, et cetera, those are big trends. Uh, solar everywhere is a big trend. Even in much of Canada, except maritime east and west, solar is readily available, right? Yes, very much so. Yes. And so I think solar on buildings, solar to serve buildings. And then maybe a little less rapidly, the idea of getting back to what we did 100 years ago with you know, with the eco-districts idea of district heating and cooling, putting the efficiencies in a central place, not trying to do it building by building. But, you know, the, the big opportunity here is in the residential sector. You know, we pretty much got commercial figured out. Residential, we still allow people to build really bad buildings for people to live in. And poorly performing, poorly insulated, you know, poor moisture management. And yet it's Residential is equal to commercial in terms of carbon impact of energy use. So we really haven't done that well with residential buildings. And the argument there is probably, well, we need to make it just code as we've done in California. You basically have to do a green building because the building code, Cal Green, says you got to. And that level is the playing field for everybody. Fine. Okay. But California is just 12% of the U.S. population. 
and there are too many other examples, but that shows you, I think there's this balance between standards and codes, standards to raise the ceiling, if you will, and codes to raise the floor. Yeah, that's, a, that's very well put, actually. I like that, standards to raise the ceiling, codes to raise the floor. Very well put. So we're wrapping up now. Where can people find you on social media? I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. But if you want to let people know your contact coordinates, where they can see your work. Twitter, just at Jerry Udelson. If you go to reinventinggreenbuilding.com, the title of my book, you'll see all of that stuff. But LinkedIn, Twitter, the website, I'm there. And as, as Robert said earlier, you can just Google me. And if it doesn't tickle too much, you'll... I won't mind. <laughs> so we're just for listeners, we'll also be putting a link to Jerry's book there. Now, I recommend uh, this book as a good read for anyone who's interested in what's wrong with now and where things might go in the future. I found it very interesting, but yes, I am a total nerd. But I think it goes past the nerd group as well, quite frankly. So, Jerry, thank you very, very much for coming on. That was very interesting. I got a lot from that conversation, actually. Okay, guys. Thanks so much. Well, Adam, that was a great uh, interview. What uh, what were your takeaways on that? It's interesting. God, he was popping out some knowledge bombs all the way through there, right? <laughs> it's hard to, yeah, hard to keep up with it. Yeah, four hundred addenda in the lead system, eleven thousand interpretations of lead credits. You know, and the, the stats he was just throwing out there. Yeah, six hundred building six hundred building certification programs around the world. It's like paralysis through analysis. How do we even choose? There's so many. Yeah, I, I that was a mind blowing one. I'm going to have to tweet that out actually. And this this other one, I mean, yeah, I consider myself reasonably well informed. Edge as Leeds' biggest competitor was a new one for me. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to have to work to look at them. We might have to get them on the podcast and see if they think they are Leeds' biggest competitor. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they don't see it that way. I mean, Jerry's got a good handle on what's going on, particularly in the North American market. But the other thing I really liked was building as an innovation, as an information device. Device, yeah, yeah. That was really good. You know, so if I put my old property developer's hat on, right? So the net to gross efficiency of a building. So the net is what you can get money for. The gross is what you can't. You know, this is a property developer, your cost of borrowing, your internal rate of return, and the net to gross on the building are what matters. That's not going to change. However, if tenants come along and demand a certain level of environment, indoor air quality, a certain level of performance, then developers will respond to that. So I think yeah. that has to come from there. But, um, you know, the, the other thing is security. You know, so for instance, I, I do a lot of work with Corps of Engineers. You're never going to get them to share the analytics on their buildings, ever. As, yeah. as long as I've got two eyes in my head, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> However, there is no reason why certain government buildings couldn't lead the way with that, right? Libraries, sure. civic buildings, there's nothing oh, yeah. secure about Hospitals. That. Yeah. And, you know, progressive developers, the AAA developers, uh, you know, why wouldn't they want to do that? Because it's a way of bragging how good their buildings are, right? Yeah. But there's a security issue there that has to be addressed. Yeah. I was really pleased to hear him talk about, you know, um, the number of smaller buildings that really are in terms of quantity. Yeah. That's what populates our, our landscape. It's not the big buildings. It's the small buildings. And I was, you know, quite happy to hear him talk about that. You know, $150 a square foot. 20,000 square foot building, 3 million bucks for the building. Yeah, who's going to spend thousands and thousands of dollars on a certification yeah. process, right? But those are the buildings, those are the residential buildings, like you pointed out towards the end in terms of carbon footprint. The residential sector equals the commercial sector in terms of carbon use. And uh, that's any, you know, that's a big problem for us. And, and he made two good points that apply to all buildings, but I think particularly residential buildings, that is using standards to raise the ceilings and the codes to raise the floor. And that needs to that needs to happen. Yeah, that's a really succinct way of putting that. Again, I might have to steal that, Jerry. So I apologise online, <laughs> but I might have to steal that. I will acknowledge you whenever I use it though in presentations. But you know, as a libertarian, it pains me to say this, but this is a role that government has to play that's completely legit, right? Right. The residential sector is not going to change itself, and people will buy any piece of dog shit because they think it's going to go up forever in value, right? Yeah, so absolutely. So the yeah. only way to deal yeah. with that is the big hand of government, right? Yeah. Where 
California is leading in that respect. I think. Yeah. They're doing a great job. Well, yeah. I mean, we. Li- I mean, one of the benefits of living in a free market society is that we get to choose. Well, when you have a, a an industry which the home building business is, it's producing a consumer product. And the government has established a floor based on the codes. That's the lowest level that you can produce it to. Well, in a free market system, that code is the bottom line. It's, you know, you can't go any lower than the floor, otherwise someone's going to fail the building. But people seem to think that codes, eventually they become the maximum. So instead of being the minimum, they become the maximum. And that's the flaw with the free market system. With yes. the, and that's why your yeah. point about... Governments need to get involved. They have to raise the floor. We know where the ceilings are because the standards provide it. So that's we have to get that floor raised. And you're right. The only way to do it is with, with government and codes. Well, I think we should end it there because you said the magic words I like to hear. You're right. <laughs> uh, I'm always trying to stroke your ego there, Adam. <laughs> you're, always, you're always right. You're never wrong. Good man. I think I'm going to quit while I'm ahead here. So on that note, I'll see you on the next one. All right. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.